Welcome to the Aftermind Podcast with myself, Stephen Goldstein, and my co-host, Mark Randall. The Aftermind Podcast seeks to illuminate and explore how traders succeed in financial markets by understanding the mindset, behavior, and psychology that underlies great risk-taking performance. Every trader would love to be bulletproof. To be bulletproof is to be able to survive the mental shots taken at us each and every day in the financial markets that disrupt and corrupt our decision making and inflict major damage on our trading and investment performance. In this episode, trader performance coach Steve Ward talks about his latest book, Bulletproof Trading. He tells us about the book and also what it means to become bulletproof as a trader. Steve also talks about his journey of transition from sports psychologist to leading trader performance coach and author of some of the best-selling books on trader mindset, including one of the most popular books of recent years, High Performance Trading. Myself and Mark had an excellent and invigorating chat with Steve, and we are sure you will get value from our discussions. Before we start, a quick word about the Alpha Mind podcast sponsor, the Society of Technical Analysts, the STA. The STA are one of the world's leading professional bodies serving the technical analysis and trading communities. We are delighted to announce that as a result of our partnership with the STA, listeners to the Alpha Mind podcast can now receive a £100 or local currency equivalent discount on the cost of their world-beating home study course and the home study course and diploma package, which offers diplomas accredited by CISI, the Chartered Institute for Securities and Investments, which is a global professional body for those who work in the financial and investment profession. The study course is an online replication of the full STA diploma program, which is delivered annually at the London School of Economics. The modules are produced by some of the leading figures from the world of finance and cover a wide range of topics. Now, just to give you a sense of some of the areas covered, it includes the foundational aspects of technical analysis, comparing and contrasting technical analysis to fundamental quantitative analysis. And it also explores the basics of support and resistance, chart patterns, trend lines, Fibonacci targets, and time frame analysis. Now that's the sort of thing which you get perhaps on some of the other courses out there, but that is literally just the first of many modules which completes the program. It also looks at a wide range of, of different chart types and provides detailed coverage of line charts including relative strength and bar charts, price and volume, equivolume, scaling etc. Now there are modules on a whole range of topics, points and figure charts, candle charts and other Japanese charting techniques, Dow theory and market breadth, moving averages, momentum indicators and oscillators, cycles, the Elliott wave principle, basics of GAN theory, market profile, Ichimoku charts, market psychology, trading plans and money management, managing risk and constructing a quantitative trading system, behavioural finance and report writing as well as many other aspects. There is not a more thorough and professional programme in the world. This is the gold standard and as well as upgrading your knowledge and expertise, this will be a major boost to your resume or CV. Participants in this programme typically include traders, 
both retail and professional, portfolio and fund managers, investors, analysts, trading system designers, financial journalists, and anyone curious to understand more about price action analysis techniques. Now to take advantage of this offer, just visit our blog page, alphamindblog.blogspot.com or Google the Alphamind blog. And on the pages at the top, you will see page for the STA Home Study Course. There you will get details of how to get the £100 discount. Or email us info at alphaRcubed.com. That is info at the word alpha, the letter R, and the word cubed.com. Whilst you are there on our blog, you may also want to check out the Alpha Mind Trader Performance Coaching Program. The Trader Performance Coaching Program helps people learn about, understand, and develop their risk capability. The program is based on work we have been delivering to elite traders inside some of the world's leading trading and investment firms over the past decade. The coaching helps people facilitate greater self-awareness that enables them to see themselves from afar in ways they have never experienced before. This raised self-awareness helps people to understand at a deeper level how they can improve and then support themselves to make positive mindset shifts and changes which can help them bridge the gap between potential to succeed and actual success itself. Again, if you're keen to know more about this, go to the Trader Performance Coaching Program page on the blog or email us info at alphaRQ.com. Now, on with the podcast. Well, welcome to this week's Alpha Mind podcast, and we're delighted to have uh, Steve Ward with us. Uh, Steve is a specialist consultant providing coaching to traders, fund managers, aimed at enhancing their risk-taking, improving their decision-making, and achieving and sustaining high performance. Many of you will know of him from um, books that he's penned, including High Performance Trading, Sports Betting to Win, and Trader Mind. And of course, he has a new book out, and I think... uh, we want to hear more about this book called Bulletproof Trader. So um, over to you, Steve. Steve, perhaps you can give us a bit of background. We know that uh, you originally were a sports coach that transitioned into the financial markets sphere, but tell us more about you. Yeah, firstly, hi, Mark. Hi, Steve, and thanks for the invite onto the show. Um, yeah, so as you said, I, I initially started off working in, in the world of performance in the sporting world. As a sports psychology coach, worked with athletes and teams, 33 different sports all over the globe. Uh, Very enjoyable. This is sort of late 90s, early 2000s, when sports psychology really in this country was still uh, in the the shadows, really. It wasn't that uh, well evolved. And um, really through chance in probably January, February 2005, I was invited to come and try some of those, I guess, some of those sports psychology skills with, with, a, with a prop trading group in London, uh, Refco Trading as it, as it was. And um, at the time, I knew nothing about trading, so it's completely new for me. We did some work together. It went really well. And then probably I think I did the Winter Olympics in 2006 and a bit of work in rugby league. But by the end of 06, really, just through word of mouth and just by interest, I was doing the bulk of my work um, in the trading and investing space. And that's how it's been since then. So that's all for really 14, 15 years. And um, yeah, so that, that's really, I think that's the, the sort of in a nutshell um, background. No, it's, uh, it's, it's a tremendous story. And I think the fact that you've now, <clears throat> bothered is the wrong word, but I think the, the fact that you've now set to create these, these very valuable reference books for people, you know, to, to scale your sort of uh, processes uh, across the marketplace to a very, very wide audience. I mean, that takes a lot of effort as well. So um, I, I think uh, 
How did you find that process and fit that in? I mean, these are well, well written tomes. Thanks for the uh, for the compliment. Uh, my English teacher would be pretty surprised that I've written four books, probably more than anybody else. Um, so, I mean, basically, the first one I wrote, this is probably going back, I think, 2009, 2010, was really a way, I think I've been working in trading for about five years, and it gave me a chance to really put a few thoughts together and try and really assimilate all my own information. And the bulk of my work, 95% is with institutional clients. And I get a lot of requests and interest from sort of the retail trading community. So it was also a way that I could kind of maybe share some of what, I guess, my insights and learning with that broader community. And then really the same, I think sports betting to win came about by chance. I was working for a, like a hedge fund that, that actually betted on sports rather than financial markets. Publisher found out, asked if I could do a book in that realm. So that was a bit of an opportunistic one. Uh, which surprisingly has done very well in quite a niche of a niche. Trade of mind, I know Mike, you, are, you are a big mindfulness guy yourself. So that was, again, I'd been interested in mindfulness for about three or four years. Uh, it was a way of putting those ideas together into a, um, a format for traders specifically, because I got asked a lot about, you know, are there any good books that, that are trading related on mindfulness? There weren't any, I don't think, at the time. And then the latest one really just come around. We've all probably been aware, you know, you, you and Steve will know this for sure, that clients, you know, institutional clients facing lots of stresses, pressures, demands in the markets from various different um, angles. And it's just really a book focused more around how do we deal with the downs of trading, you know, when it's challenging and difficult and stressful. So specifically on, on, on those skills. So each has got their own sort of uniqueness. I think the first one is a nice general overview. Obviously, sports betting one's pretty niche. Trader minds the mindfulness type approaches. And then this one's more of a resiliency, mental toughness, hardiness type book. So um, hopefully across all of them, something for, for everybody. Steve, again, welcome to the show. It's, it's a pleasure to have you. We, we've yeah. met before. Th this most recent book I just want to ask you about first, because I love the title. And it reminds me of um, a talk I gave to a group of young retail traders last year. And um, one of them asked me, how did you become bulletproof? And, and I'm just going to throw that over to you. <laughs> Great. Um, well, I think, I think the key thing is, um, it, it is a process. So it is about how do you become, it is a becoming, it's not a you've got it or you haven't got it. I think that's a really important distinction we want to make. And I think the word bulletproof means different things for different people as well. So, um, in, in the, I mean, I got the title from that book. I was doing some work with a hedge fund manager, highly successful, had been for a number of years and was really trying to look for some skills to protect him against potential future setbacks. So really sort of trying to be upfront and front loading it. So that's where I got the title of him because he said, I want to be bulletproof. I said to him, you know, what does that mean for you? So I got him to define it. But I think most people would see it as a set of resiliency skills, dealing with setbacks, stresses, losses, difficult emotions. And so we're all gonna have our own starting point. And it is multi-dimensional. So there's a lot of, for me, there's some work we're doing up front. So how we set our process out, you know, match that to our personalities and our styles and preferences, that helps. There's our mindset piece about how we choose to think about the world, about risk, about markets, about winning and losing. Um, so there's, there's some work we can do up front and there's a skill set to that. And there's multiple, I think there's 25 chapters in the book and I had to cut about five or six out as well. So 
Uh, <laughs> well, I say I did. The editors cut them out, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's a, it's a, in all fairness, it's a good place to be, and it's nice to have too much and to cut it than to be told you haven't got enough and you've got to try and stretch it out because, you, I, you know, we've all read those sorts of books where you can see it could have been three chapters and they've made it into ten and yes. it's, a, it's a bit of a grind. So, um, and yeah, so, so the other set of skills really is what do we do almost like, you know, in the moment. So, you know, when I'm... Uh, in a losing trade or I'm trying to hold on to a winner or I'm trying to get back into the market or upscale my risks position sizing and how do I deal with the thoughts and the emotions sensations in the body that show up in those moments so and and, and the book tries to cover really you know a, a, a cross-section of the upfront stuff that in the moment and a bit about recovery as well um and then what I've done in the book to try and make it a little bit different is it's not just psychological. So there's a little bit of philosophy in there. So there's some kind of a stoic philosophy, which I've found really interesting and helpful. And there's a lot of physiology in there as well. So that's been a big piece of my work is, is looking at trader physiology and what's going on in the body while we're taking risk and making decisions and particularly when it's challenging. Yeah, that's, that, that's interesting because, you know, again, coming back to that phrase bulletproof, when I was a trader in the 90s, one of my colleagues used to sit there and just go on all the time about trying to make himself bulletproof. And bizarrely, the more he tried to, the less he became. So it was like, he went around it the wrong way. But um, that, that idea, that last phrase you used about stoicism, you know, I, I find that is so important in trading. And so many of the best traders I've worked with and coached are, in my mind, they're stoic. They're stoic about everything. Mm. You know, you have to be, you have to be realistic. You have to be pragmatic. You have to be practical, um, and if you get caught on flights of flights of fancy and romanticism about an idea or a trade, you're, you're setting yourself up for a problem. Um, yeah, agreed. So uh, that's fascinating. Okay, Mark, anything that you you heard there that interests you? I think you? it fits in very well with what we always talk about: mental armor and weaponizing the mind and. Uh, navigating the minefield that is markets. I mean, mm. we've thrown all these sort of military sort of terms now. Um, you know, the, the minefield of yeah. knowns and the minefield of unknowns. Um, some things are predictable. Of course, with, with data releases, yeah. you know when they're coming out. <clears throat> uh, and people at a retail side often don't have that intelligence to know that, mm. that mines are coming. Um, and it's having this very, very broad awareness. So... I mean, I just love the way that, uh, as, as, as one of our podcasts recently was a SEAL naval, naval commander that is migrating into mindfulness now he's retired. But just hearing how relevant this is in a theatre of war and then understanding actually what we're doing in markets is kind of like a theatre of war. And actually all these military-type terms and phrases and processes are very, very relevant into the fight that we have uh, before us yeah it was uh, when i was doing my mindfulness training early on this is 2010 11 into 12 they were just doing some research with the u.s marines mark i'm sure you'll know this research uh, elizabeth stanley was kind of leading it from the military side she was a or i think at the time she was ex-military or maybe still serving and um they set up a program called mindfulness based mind fitness maybe it's called right, m yeah. m fit i think it was called exactly but anyway I, at the time by 2013 i was starting to kind of get the idea for trader mind the, the book and i was obviously following the research they were doing so i was lucky enough in 2014 i went out to the us and spent 10 days out there with um with sort of the mind fitness team and there was a few guys special forces guys and some marines on there as well 
And um, I was lucky enough, I actually, we, we got paired up on, on this course and yet I was out there for 10 days. So we, we had roommates and my, my roommate was a special forces um, soldier who was who left the military and was now retraining. And again, like your, like your SEAL guy was doing, was going to do some mindfulness in that work. So it was interesting to kind of be going through the course and learning the mind fitness, I guess, the theory and, and, the, and the process of how they wanted to teach it in the military. And at the same time, there was two or three people there that I really got on well with them where I could discuss what would that be like in reality. So because obviously when you're a researcher or you're a practitioner or a coach and you're thinking about you know, how it should be used is one thing. But then how people in the real world can take that away and apply it and what really makes sense, the pragmatic you know, side, which, which Steve mentioned, which is really important, uh, was really interesting. So, and, and, and I think we're seeing more and more now this increase in mindfulness and, 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 and psychological skills in general within the military, particularly in special ops, um, which I think is a resurgence because if you go back to the 80s, you had the Ultimate Warrior um, program, which was uh, Aikido and meditation based. Yes, we had all jo- jo- Joel and uh, Michelle Levy, of course, and I, I know them very well. And um when I met them well, relatively recently in London, um, they still have this this sense of, even though they're very California, <laughs> if you know what I mean, very, you can tell they come from California. Um, but just their, their, their presence, and mm. they get it, and they, they get the way that, um, you know, mind fitness is a better way of applying... Yeah essentially mindfulness to yeah. the, the, the real world situation. Uh, and they're very critical of the, well, I guess what in the UK is sort of 95% fluffy mindfulness and the stuff where you go and get a certificate and you start practicing it and the boot off you go. Uh, and of course you, you can't take that into no. the corporate world. You can't take that into no. particular, the trader no. end of the, of, of the corporate world. And so I think you're, you're very right to uh, dwell on the, the, the mind fitness approach Mm-hmm. And it's better. It's a better yeah. rapper. It's an easy way to sell it. And and I think fitness and performance and you know the outcome based type strategy um, yep. is what we're collectively, you yep. know, Steve, myself, and yourself. You know, we we, we share a common language that's probably quite rare yep. in the space. Yeah. Yep. You know, there, I think that there are not many people that are wrapping this up appropriately. It's interesting. I, I heard a I heard a quote last week which came from. Um, Lance Lance Beggs in Australia and uh, he's a coach as well and he said it's not so much that you have an edge in trading you mm-hmm. are the edge and and I thought that was brilliant I thought that just summed it up and that that goes along with with something a quote you use Mark um, about turning up uh, how what it remind me again I love that phrase but I can't quite remember You're it showing up for life <laughs> basically <laughs> showing up for life and and I think within that sort of phrase it extends to having the ability to reset, refresh, and recalibrate mm. when you get knocked yeah. down yeah. and you then have to re-show up for life again. Um, and knowing, knowing that that process exists, mm. exists as a method of managing you um, is pretty damned essential, but many, many people just don't have that mindset. Um, but I think it's vital, particularly in the world we're living in yeah. at the moment, to have that type of attitude. Yeah. I think it's mindset and it's skill set. I think it's a combination of those two. It's having a mental framework, you know, a way that you think about things and, and you view the world and, and, and yourself and challenge and difficulty. And then it's having some skills that you can deploy when it's, you know, when they're needed. Um, and I think we're still failing in this country to equip young people with mental skills and to shape mental frameworks are helpful. And maybe going through the, the context we are now, 
people will realize actually because i think people are developing some of these skills because we're in it and we have to develop it we've got to develop the psychological skills to get through it when we're in it so hopefully people will realize we may have more of this in the future and and educators teachers trainers governments whoever it's going to be us will be more mindful of actually saying well we can we can teach this we can teach the frameworks and we can teach the skills to equip people we all know in our field uncertainty is one of the big challenges and we know we're seeing it in the world now and i think people who have been in markets and people who have maybe been through training like we've done where you become comfortable with uncertainty where you are open to it accept it you can embrace it you can see it actually as opportunity as much as threat um, will navigate it more successfully uh, I mean, I, I wasn't born with those skills and I wasn't born with that mindset. Uh, I don't think I even had it until probably later on in my life. So, it, you know, it's a, it, it definitely is teachable. It definitely is learnable. Uh, and then you, obviously it's, it, you can apply it. That's, this, this brings me back to one of the points I wanted to make at the beginning that you raised at the start. Um, and this comes back to, in a sense, to your sports psychology in the world of sports. Now, the world of sports started embracing development probably from the 80s and through the 90s to the point where in the in the noughties it became a lot more sophisticated so you know up until the 80s you know sports teams would turn up with a few cones and a bib and run around the pitch and that was considered training and then they'd go down the pub okay and then in the you know that was the same with football in rugby tennis players they maybe had a you know a, a coach but they just played a lot of games and games backwards and forwards and then it started to change in the 90s in a big way. And in, in the noughties, we had Team Sky and, you know, their, their approach to micro-improvements in cycling. You know, up till then, it was like, how can we cheat in cycling to get ahead? And, you know, some people will say Team Sky. You know, in other words, they pushed the grey areas. They went, how far, you know, other than the, you know, in preparation, how can we improve? How can we get better? How can we develop? And, and, and that became part of British Olympic um, skills, and development as we saw you know we were picking up one or two medals for many olympics and then we started winning 10s and then 20s and then 30s um we worked really hard on developing the person not just the skill and trading to me this world we're in which is there's so much money on the line it doesn't do it yet it's it's peripheral you know what we're doing is at the edge it's at the margin and it, and it's getting more accepted and we're you know we're seeing more of it especially from some of the younger people who are a little bit more open to it. But they're not running the companies. You know, very few of them are running funds. You know, it's still older guys with the attitude, you know, I didn't need a coach. Why should they need a coach? You know, but what's your experience of this and what's your view on this? Because, you know, you must see the same thing, I presume. Yeah, no, I would echo what you said, Steve. So, I mean, I came into trading in 2005. I spent a five, about four or five years in high-performance sport before that. Which in the early 2000s, it was not as sophisticated as it is now. So it was very different, particularly in the approach to psychology, which was definitely very niche in the early 2000s. But you're right, 70s, 80s, sport went from it's all about fitness and you've got it or you haven't got it into suddenly realizing we can develop people technically, tactically, fitness wise, psychologically, nutritionally and so on. So we've seen that performance revolution over the last 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, now, so sports well down the curve you're right I, when i came into the markets in 2005 i couldn't believe for the amount of money that was being thrown around from moment to moment how unsophisticated trading was as a performance activity and part of my underlying i guess um mission 
in my work with traders and fund managers is to try and help them to become more performance orientated. And that means to think about the culture in performance terms, how they interact, the environment in performance terms, individuals as performers, and what that even means. I mean, obviously, we all know that, you know, in our world, people are very sucked into and obsessed with results and outcomes, but that isn't performance. You know, that everyone's dominated by thinking about here's a result, here's an outcome, and they call that performance. But in the sports world, performance is who you are, what you do, how you do it, where you do it, who you do it with. It's a doing and being. And then there's an outcome from that. So part of my mission has been to really, I guess, try and um, underneath the surface or sometimes very overtly make it clear to people that there are areas for improvement that you can bring in to make trading a more sophisticated performance world. I mean, simply, you know, the use of analytics in sport, we know that we see it's huge. Your data is everywhere. You see in-game, post-game stats and data, how many traders and fund managers are really accessing good quality metrics and data and utilizing it to improve performance. Um, I I don't see it as often as I would like to see it. No, and I think this is a huge area. And I know we've both been in touch with with Claire at Accenture. You know, and I think that's always fantastic. But... Yeah, it, it's still at the margins, that sort of thing, you know, and, you know, when you speak to people, you know, I, you know, I don't need one of those, they'll say, I'm sorry, how do you analyse, you know, it's great to see yeah. that, you yeah. know, how you get out of a trade yeah. is killing half your P&L, you know, it's, it's reducing what you could make by 50%, you know, if you can get just a small bit better at that, yeah. and reduce it by 40%, <laughs> you know, it's not an absolute, I don't think you can ever quite remove you know, you can get to perfection, but, you know, if you can reduce these areas by a few notches, it's like Team Sky, as we say, you know, micro-improvements took them from a, a team in the world of sports that was yep. not even on the radar to teams that were multiple, uh, you know, uh, Olympic champions, Tour de France winners, year after year. And it was, and, and I see the same, you know, with some of the young traders I know, they they are very much into performance reviews, journaling, you know, and it's like, you know, the, these guys get it and, and they're brilliant and you see the results, you know, that they, they eat what they kill, so they have to be, yeah, to me, often they're better than the hedge fund guys, a lot of them, because of that eat what you kill mentality. Essentially, there's a leadership and a culture issue in terms of if you go into a fund, and this is true actually in sport, you know, the amount of sport science that's utilized from, from team to team and in sport to sport is a reflection of leadership of, of the club um, as well. So not all premiership teams have the same approach to sport science. Uh, and a few years back, it was even more varied. It's probably the, the playing field's leveling now. But the so I think you know when you go into a fund, or even in you know if you go into banks or commodity trading houses, that the leadership, the culture of the organisation, plus that obviously on the desk itself, is going to have a strong impact on what is the way as such. You know what's our way of doing things, and whether that is very performance orientated or, or not so much. So I've got uh, something to throw into that. I mean, it, it's quite true that in the professional world, someone's job as it were they've joined they've joined a, a salary paying business and they get a bonus to do a job and that job is defined in a job description there's nothing in that job description that talks about managing themselves in that pre-process you know as you described very well there steve that the, the managing your being the managing your sense of your connectivity to others and your even the way you set up to observe mm. the world of markets uh, is so significant and so many people get it wrong. Mm. Um, 
Because it is yeah. an awareness thing and an attention yeah. thing uh, amongst other things. Because if you're not aware of the breadth of what's going on, you are not going to pick up the opportunities and which which sit at the edges of, of markets, as as we know. But you don't get that in a job description. Yeah. No. Well, I think job descriptions and competencies are very much doing based. And um, this is one of the themes actually in the book is the importance of focusing on being. So, you know, there's a lot of focus on, you know, process in trading, also, you know, the trading process, the actions we've got to take and the steps we need to take and so on. So, uh, and, and rightly so, because we'd all agree, I think, that, you know, process is at the core of, of, of trading performance. But what I think it doesn't focus on enough or what, or what it doesn't get people to think about is who am I, who, who do I want to be while I'm doing the doing? Because we know that the quality of the execution of the process is going to be a reflection, not just of the task, what needs to be done, but also who you're being while you're doing that. You know, am I being calm, composed? Am I being patient? Am I being, you know, daring, adventurous? You know, the being states that I bring, the attitudes, qualities and strengths are going to impact how I do what I do. And that's going to impact the results. But we don't seem to in the trading world, and I would go broader into the corporate world and probably the world, placing enough attention on on the being and who do I want to be. No, absolutely. And the, the, how we perform today is very much how we managed our performance yesterday. Yeah. You know, and how we rested and, and, and you know, woke up mm -hmm. to today. I mean, it's all lots of things. Um, and I'm glad, and they're within your book. I mean, your, your book goes into these things, um, the, the new book. Um, are there any further linked sort of topics that, that sort of expand upon this from the book i think one of the i mean you talked about recovery and this is a big thing that i've talked about in the book is the physiology of, of performance and i've spent the last probably six years spending quite a lot of time wiring traders up to biofeedback devices and getting 24 7 data for four to five day periods and then analyzing that, looking at it against their, obviously their trading data and their trading performance, plus their subjective experience and seeing what's going on in the body during both quieter market periods and busier market periods. And, and it's pretty clear when markets are busy, when volatility is higher, when traders are really working longer and harder, there's a strain on the body. And what a lot of traders don't have is they don't have a conscious way or conscious process for how they recover from high strain periods or just, a, or just the kind of gradual um, cumulative strain of the job over time. So, you know, outside of booking, you know, the time off and vacations, there's not a conscious awareness for many people about the need for recovery, both intraday uh, as well as evenings, weekends, and then, you know, strategic recovery over time. So, so that's one thing I spent a lot of time working with my clients and they always find it interesting because most people know they should sleep well, eat well, exercise and, and so on. So we know it's like trading, you know, we know what we should be doing, uh, but, but that's not going to be enough. And so what the data does when we when we hook them up and we get the data from we basically look under the hood and see the, the objective physiological data is we can look at quality, quantity of stress, quality, quantity, recovery, likewise, sleep and physical activity. When you see it in red, green and blue, as it comes out and all the stats and data, it makes people realize uh, the state of the body. And, and it's a nice way in that we can then go, look, this is how it is. Um, it's not optimal, but there's a few tweaks that we could make with that that could probably improve that for you. And I mean, there's good research. There's plenty of research that supports the fact that the brain's embodied. It's, it's inside the body and the state of the body will affect how well the brain functions. So, again, a lot of stuff is known. The key is getting people to engage with it. And that's where I found, you know, that the monitoring, the measuring, the data has been helpful. And then we can obviously put some things in place and then do a retest in six to eight weeks time, observe the data again and see the difference. But um, I think you know, people... We talk a lot about the stress of markets and the strains that come with trading, and that is true. 
but the, but one of the most effective ways to balance that is is with quality recovery you know it's a stress recovery balance um, we should be looking for about 30% recovery per day. That's this for normal people under normal conditions to get that balance right. Well, I've got trading clients who are down at 10 and 11%. I mean, it's unsustainable. I mean, it, it's a um, recipe for disaster. So, and you can do that for a few days, but you can't do it forever. Yeah, that's, that's one of the big challenges of trading is that it's it's almost a 24-7 job. Mm. There's no, you know, in the world of sport, you know, you, you train, then yeah. you rest, then you gear up for an event you train and then mm. you rest you, you know you're the day after a big event i presume you're never called in for trading for a, a training for a day or two and if it is it's it's a bit of light training yep. and more of a feedback you know review session um i, I don't think there's another activity like it no. where you you know you you pitch up at your chair at seven o'clock in the morning mm. your train journey if you arrive by train has been reading stuff about the markets on the yeah. way uh, then you're sitting in that chair and I, I remember you know till five six seven o'clock at night and then you leave and have dinner and then you're checking the market all night long and, and you're so suboptimal mm -hmm. physically which means you're suboptimal mentally you know and and you know i think we've you've probably seen the judges parole yeah. board data that time you know you cannot be at, you, you 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 should only trade when you're at your best and you can only really be at your best for a few hours a day and, and that's you know doing it every single day and, and it's I, I i remember there was a guy years ago who i i did the analysis for the psychometric analysis and this was a guy at a hedge fund an awesome trader very nervous individual very anxious individual but he never traded beyond one o'clock any day at one o'clock he was an intraday trader he would hedge square up all his positions at one o'clock so he didn't care that he missed stuff after that because it was pointless to him because he knew I mean he'd been doing it 20 years he knew he had nothing to give mm. in the afternoon so why bother yeah you know he'd do his performance reviews then he would do his some of his market analysis you know some of the stuff that wasn't decision making yeah. that was just kind of informative and reflective it, mm. it was brilliant you know you cannot be at your I mean this is one of the advantages longer term yeah. traders yeah. would have over short term traders you know they don't have to be sitting there making decisions yeah. all day long you know I know Warren Buffett I read somewhere you know he spends the afternoon just reviewing reading and then won't make a decision in the evening mm -hmm. he'll just sleep on stuff to the next day yeah. we will return shortly to the podcast just a quick reminder about the AlphaMind podcast sponsor the Society of Technical Analysts the STL the world's leading professional body serving the technical analysis and training communities we are delighted to announce as a result of our partnership with the STA, listeners to the Alphamine podcast can receive an exclusive £100 or local currency equivalent discount on the cost of their world-beating STA home study course. To take advantage of this offer, just visit our blog page, alphamineblog.blogspot.com, and on the pages at the top, you will see a link to the STA home study course. Details of how to get the £100 discount are contained within that page. Now back to the podcast. I mean, people often say to me, having come from sports, what's the difference between sports and trading? And I, and I, as Steve, as you said, one of the things I always say is, in trading, there's no off-season for a start. You know, I mean, if you're playing football, I mean, footballers might moan if they play twice a week. You know, they're playing two lots of 90 minutes a week and they're having a moan. Um, you know, and if that's play three games in a week, or look now in the lockdown period where the games have been compressed or the amount of attention that got to this compressed playing season, people playing, you know, maybe three or four days apart. Um, 
and yet in training, as you said, it's every day throughout the year, long days, no off season. You don't know when you're going to have to perform either. I mean, in sport, you know, you know, you, you know when kickoff's going to be. So you can build up to it. In trading, you don't know when the volatility is going to kick in or, you know, markets are going to change or something unexpected is going to happen. So you, you, can, you have to be prepared at almost at all times for things to happen. So there's, there's a huge difference in the, in the performance environment between trading and, and the sporting world. I mean, if you go to a, a swimming event and you're doing 50 meter front crawl, you're going to do 50 meters. You're not going to do 51 or 49. You're not going to have 15 people in your lane. Um, the pool temperature is going to be pretty similar. You know, so much, so much of it, and cycling is the same. That's why cycling concentrate on track cycling because it's so replicable. It's controllable. You, you, you can plan and prepare for it very intricately. And it's so completely different to the world of trading where it's just not like that at all. So some themes from sport cross over, but it's so different. Um, and it, it is always on. And this is where I think traders. So the reality is that's the nature of the performance um, activity. So you can't necessarily change that. But you can, as you said, with your example, traders can start to look for opportunities to engage um, into higher states or lower states during the course of the day or over the course of the year when they know there might be more or less opportunity. I've got a client I'm working with at the moment. He knows that the last two weeks of July, historically for him, are very quiet market's a bit messy with what he trades. He very rarely makes any money. So that's his every year, that two, that's two weeks of July, that's downtime. So you can structure it in, you know, I think once you've traded for a while, you, you've got a pretty good sense as to during the days, the weeks, the months, when there are times of lower or higher opportunity and you can work around that. And the other skill is however much you can sleep, whether it's six, seven or eight hours or five hours, learn to sleep well. So you get quality within the time you're sleeping. Um, and then look for recovery breaks during the day, even in short doses, mindfulness type activities. I teach a lot of breath work and recovery strategies that we can do in two, three, four, five minutes to recharge and refresh the body. See, see the comparisons are, first of all, it's sport. The other comparisons mm. are games, of course, because that's yeah. much more in the mind. That's yeah. much more decision making yeah. rather than physical. Um, and of course, you know, I, I, I think there's a lot mm. of comparisons to poker in particular particular which seems to have almost you know unlimited yeah. amount of options but then again a poker game is a limited time event yeah you know <laughs> you choose when to turn mm -hmm. up you choose when you'll play yeah. you choose when you will leave um again you know the limitation you know and the options are even greater with trading so it's the the re's now as i'm hearing mm -hmm. it refresh reset recalibrate i think that's your three mark isn't it and then recover now you can have recover to it as well. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There's many. There's many R's. And I think mm -hmm. the gamification, I think, uh, is, is very interesting because it does bring in a different yeah. type of person into trading that's never been in trading before. Um, and of course, the, a lot of the retail world listen to our podcasts, you know, to to, to, mm -hmm. to understand, to try to work out where the edge is in this thing and of course they don't have the benefit of being told to come in at eight and go home at seven um they're just playing with this thing as a game uh so so what advice advice would you have to them in in the context of, of being bulletproof because they're they're operating in a different rule environment they're probably much more 24 7 than than any you know frontline real trader is because you know, they're using it as almost like an, an addictive sort of tool. Um, and I, I suppose we've all got advice we can offer, but of course this podcast is a, is a, is a venue for, for sharing such advice. So from your book, is there anything that, that, that comes, comes out from that? 
probably not so much from the book, but my one of my philosophies, and this, which I've always said when I'm working with, with the retail community is you've got to make a decision about why you're doing what you're doing. So you've got to be clear on purpose. So if, you do, if you're playing this for fun and you want to just kind of pop on your phone or whatever every now and again and have a little dabble and, it, you know, a bit like some people might do with, with, with betting, you know, on, on football and so on, then that's fine. Uh, be aware of the risks, but also be aware the intention is you're doing it for fun. And that's the, that essentially that's the game that you're playing. If you're doing it as a way to maybe make extra pocket money and to put a bit, you know, a bit of money into a holiday fund or, or, or for pay for school, you know, education for the kids, college, whatever, then that's a different intention. So you've got to line up your behavior and your approach with the intention. And again, be mindful of what that means in terms of and the risk it carries and what you need to do to achieve that. If you're doing it with the intention of being a full-time professional and making it your living, then again, the intention has to be different and the game you're playing is different as such. And so what you need to do and who you need to be needs to be in line with that. And I think sometimes the danger is people are doing it for one reason, but they're almost expecting it to be something different. So they're playing, they're really, they're playing the game of, I just turn up, I just want to dabble and, and, and make a bit of money or, or here and there. But they're also expecting that that approach will make them into a full-time professional, you know, trader in the long term. And, it, and in my experience, I'm not saying you can't do that. Nobody could do it. But in my experience, the bulk of people who are good at trading in any field, whether it's retail or institutional, work hard and, and smartly and cleverly and are diligent with, you know, developing a process and the doing and working on the being. So craft mind and body. It's as simple as that. You know, if you're going to be good at any anything, you've got to be good at craft, mind and body and trading's the same. You've got to be good at the craft. You've got to work on developing the craft, the knowledge, the skills, the strategies. You've got to work on the mind and you've got to make sure the body's also there to support that. And if you work on all three, then for me, that's a reflection of somebody who's looking at it in a professional way. If you're only working on maybe craft, then you're maybe in the, what, let's call it the semi-pro because you're missing out on opportunities to really be um, towards your best. And people who are dabbling are not even working on the craft. They're literally just turning up, pressing buttons. Uh, and, and, and it's fun. Like I would do if I, I, I play the guitar. I've played for about 20 years. Uh, I think I'm okay. Most might say I'm not even okay. But I, I dabble. I, I've got no intention to play scales or to learn music theory or to learn performance craft. I, t I pick it up. I play. I play what I want to play for as long as I want to. And I enjoy it. But I know that. So I don't judge myself for being, I could, you know, I don't get, stressed that I'm not as good as I could be or I don't worry about those things and I don't expect people to pay me money if I was busking I probably get expect to get paid to, to you know to stop playing so um so I think the intention is really important what am I doing this for and then once you're clear on the intention then you've got to work out what do I need to do to enable me to achieve that attention so you know know the game you're playing and, and know the rules of the game I think so really Steve, so Steve are you going to take us out with a riff at the end of this uh, this podcast yeah <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the phrase take, take you out is probably very appropriate because that, that's what my music tends to do to most people is take, take them out yeah. any inspirations yeah. who's your inspiration uh, your guitar hero I don't really have a, a guitar hero I'm, I'm a big fan of the band REM so they're my kind of big influence so I love REM Red Hot Chili Peppers right, yeah um, so yeah I like kind of really sort of heavy sort of yeah, rocky, guitar-y, but not, not heavy metal type stuff, but kind of, yeah, a bit of rock guitar with a little bit of kind of passion and, uh, and uh, pain from the people who've written the music. That's what I kind so of like. Californifications take us out at the end of today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody wants to hear that. I'm just going to change the subject ever so slightly. I'm going to go back to a question we got from, you know Mandy, Mandy Poorer Sanjani. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so... She asked me to ask you something, and I'm okay. going into... I'm nervous now. You're nervous. 
She <laughs> she said you've got some funky stories about working as a consulting trading coach on the show Million Dollar Traders. Um, uh, are you able to tell us any of these? Um, it's going back a long time now. That's 2000 and... I don't know when that was. Nine? Eight? Uh, I don't know what story she's referring to. I've probably told... I, I do tell a lot of stories. Um, well, maybe that's I'm something you're only allowed to tell in private over a bit. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what? I, 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 I honestly, I can't... I mean, I did work on the show and the show was interesting. And I'll tell you what, I'll tell you what I found interesting about it was a few things. Um, one, the aim was to see if you can take, you know, a collection of random people, essentially, from a cross-section of society, give them two weeks of training, give them a million dollars, essentially, of capital between them and, and see how they do. So, so being involved in that was interesting in terms of, OK, here's the setup and the framing. Here's the two weeks of training. What do we give them? Also, you know, you, Mark and I will have sat through many different training programs and seen the quality and quantity of that or, or not in some cases. Um, and so it's interesting to kind of see what, what they thought was relevant. And then it was just interesting to watch it as, a, as an observer uh, around how different people cope. So there was, a, you know, there was a, an ex-military guy, Mike. Um, there was a, a, an older lady, Caroline, I think in her sort of 40s at the time, who's run her own business. There was a, a, a girl, Chloe, who was a vet. Um, there was a young guy who's an economist, if I remember correctly. Uh, Simon, who was a retired business. So there's a, there's a mixture of, of you know, race, age and gender. And people did respond differently, which, which was interesting. And so it was, it, for me, it was interesting to see that in real time, just how different people do respond and, and sometimes how maybe their backgrounds and their learning histories was playing out in their trading. And, and we've all seen that ourselves, you know, that, you know, when we are in the markets, there is a reflection to some degree of, of who we've been before those moments. Um, what was most interesting for me or most frustrating for me was this, and this is a TV thing. I could see them struggling and I could see how I could help them, but I was told not to. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, well, look, you've asked me to come in and be involved in this project. And I, I did a bit of training on, on the, on the, um, on the, on the training program and so on. But when it came into the, into the real world, I had a few meetings and, and but they said, we don't want you to give too much coaching or advice or help them. And I, I was confused. I couldn't really make sense of what they meant. But then I realized if we got them, to be sort of balanced, calm, composed individuals who made sound decisions, it'd be really boring TV. And the ratings would have plummet. So, so you know, I had this kind of moment where I realized, Absolutely. oh, actually, <laughs> we, we want these people to kind of, you know, be, get angry, get frustrated, to get stressed, to panic, to, you know, not pull the trigger, because that's what's going to be engaging. So that, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was interesting for me as a kind of, I guess, a conflict between who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do for the, for the, for the people on the program. And they were asking for it. They wanted the help. Uh, and at the same time, I was unable to provide that. So it's... Um, yeah. mm. There are some interesting characters in that program, particularly at the professional side. And I think I remember at the time that yep. in markets, yep. we almost yep. treated yep. it as a comedy program, to be quite honest, just with some of the things that were coming out. Um, but it was it was still good. Te in terms of television, you guess I've got to watch what happens next. You know, it's, it sort of drew you into looking at the next episode. It was a classic one of, I mean, what, I think what they did was, and what they were trying to do was they, trading as we know, when it's done well, is not very interesting to watch. You know, watching a highly skilled professional at their screen making good decisions is not going to make great TV for um, for three hours of, of, of BBC prime time. So, so well, it might it might do for us. We, we might really enjoy that. You know, we'd probably find it fascinating. But but the viewing, you know, getting three viewers wouldn't do much for the uh, production costs. So so they, they they've got to make they've got to get the balance of making it entertaining and engaging. And I think they did that. I think you're right. You know, I, I, 
what was done around how it was managed and presented, I don't think was great sometimes. Didn't show people always in their best lights. Um, but I think what it did do is it brought trading onto the onto mainstream TV with kind of you know real people, and I think that made people got people engaged and interested um, at a time when the markets were going pretty crazy as well. So that that as well, yeah, the environment really created a bit of extra um, excitement and energy in, in the, in yeah, the, in the program. that's a good point you because, you know, many of the best traders, even the day traders I know, they're best when they're just sitting, watching, doing nothing. <laughs> exactly. Patience. Patience. I mean, can you imagine that 59 minutes, you know, the program starts 59 minutes later, the, the title, the program's called Patience. You know, they always have a, a title, it's like on the SAS, are you tough enough? It's a one word title. You, you turn on BBC One, nine o'clock, the title's Patience, and for 59 minutes, someone sits in front of their screen watching the markets as they slowly tick every now and again and then the titles come up at 59 minutes and, and it know, scrolls you know, out. It's, it's interesting because there'll be a lot of people listening here and some of them are day traders, I'm sure. Many, you know, I think most, my, most retail traders are day yeah. traders and we, we get a lot of retail traders listening. And, you know, I work with one individual who's the most incredible individual and he's going to be featured in the New Market Wizards book that comes out later this year. Um, and... You know, when I worked with him, even though he was a day trader, his brilliance was his ability ability to mm. just sit and wait yeah. and do nothing. And he was like, I called him mm. a sniper. And, you know, if you think of the idea of a sniper, they can sit for weeks sometimes and not yeah. take the shot. And not take the yeah. shot at all, because for them, it's about getting out yeah. alive. There's no point hitting someone if they're yeah. going to get killed doing it. And that's the classic yeah. sniper. And he's like that, and he can, he can only take a few trades a year sometimes, which is almost mm. why he's so brilliant. Yeah. You know, and that is the art. You know, whereas when you get sucked into doing something all the time, that's where you're just giving money away a lot of the time. Yeah. I think um, that's true. You know, if you look at um, the military in general, a lot of, and, and I think sometimes, you know, um, if you look at firefighters and even law enforcement, you know, a lot of. A lot of the, the job is not high octane. A lot of the job is you're sitting, you know, if you're a firefighter, you spend more time cleaning fire engines and, you know, repairing kit and, you know, watching videos and just relaxing in, in the crew room than you do fighting fires. Uh, and trading can be very much like that, where a lot of the time you are in, you know, waiting, observing, stalking. I think, you know, as Van Tharp would call it, you know, um, I think what the, the challenge sometimes is I think that people, or this is my perception, is people think about trading as an action activity. So they see if I'm a trader, then I should be acting and therefore I should be trading. And, and that's okay as long as we reckon, or this is how I try and frame it, that the act of trading has a component part, which is idea generation. So that's still trading. And there's a part of trading, which is where you're observing and you're monitoring the markets. And that is an active process. And, it's, and that is also trading. I think people think that trading is when you are entering, managing or executing a trade and forget about the fact that trading is broader than that. And I think once you start to frame trading as a, as a, as a broader process and you get comfortable with the fact that doing nothing is doing something. And again, who am I being? I'm being patient while I'm observing. So there's a being and a doing. Then I think it can help people to manage some of that yeah, more effectively. Yeah, you know, we, we go back when you talk about that military analogy. We had John, I think Mark's already mentioned him, John McCaskey on who was a, a Navy SEAL commander. And, you know, he was on talking about mindfulness because he developed a very strong mindfulness practice, which had helped him cope with the stress of being a Naval SEAL commander. And it helped him in the battlefield. And, and I asked him the question, 23 years, numerous tours of various battlefields as a commander, how many times did you, how many times were you active in shooting? 
He said he once fired a shot in anger in 23 years on the battlefield. And he said, we learn really not to have to take a shot. If you can win without shooting, Mm. that is the battle. Mm. It's almost like a failure that you have to engage in in the fight. Mm. You know, if you could beat your enemy without engaging them, that is it. And and this individual has a very similar kind of philosophy. Mm. You know, it's not you can't engage because you have to engage ultimately. You know, you have to throw punches and have punches thrown at you. But do it when it's the complete optimal, you know, situation where it's an asymmetric situation where your your risk of, of losing is very small, but ultimately your risk of winning is very high. And, and those situations yeah. come yeah. along rarely, and you don't want to be engaging when you yeah. don't have that that edge on your in your way. So he is the edge, and what he does is he waits for edges mm. to come along. Yeah, and I think you've got to be clear about what your edge is, and you've got to be confident in application. It sounds of like the edge. fishing, doesn't it? It is like fishing, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's about having the right bait planted in mm. the right river for the target that you're after. Yeah. So many traders, I think, have the wrong bait mm. in the wrong river. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. I guess end up getting frustrated yeah. and catching nothing. And so many people want to just put the bait in and win straight away. Yeah. But the reality is, well, generally, unless you go to a trout farm, um, you won't <laughs> win straight away. And so it's all about process and being and the act of catching and landing mm. the fish the trade and you know whatever um, is a different process yeah. altogether than the than, than the general process of awareness. Yeah. I, uh, Mark, you'll enjoy, this is another fishing analogy for you, but I'm going to go offshore. Uh, I had a, a, a client I coached who was a phenomenal fund manager, but before that, had spent about 30 years as an offshore fisherman. So it's a really interesting transition, and I was helping him through the transition and, and, and into the early stages of his career, and. I was just curious and I kind of said, you know, have you, have you been able to take anything from your fishing days, like offshore fishing into fund management? It didn't seem like it would be a, the sort of the natural transition for most people. But I thought there must be something because you were very good as a fisherman and you're looking like you're going to be exceptional as a trader. There must be something. And what it was, was this. This is how, this is how he said to me. He said, so I said, well, tell me what, what does it take to be good as an offshore fisherman? And I can then see if I can make sense of why that's open when you're trading. So he said, okay, Steve, here's what it's, it's easy. He said, basically, you also, you've got to have all the kit. So you've got to have a boat, you've got to have the nets and stuff. But, but that isn't what makes you money or loses you money. It's about how you do what you do, process. So he said, good fishermen do this. Before they go out on the water, they do their preparation. They look at the tides, they look at the weather, they look at you know, the sonars, they do all the preparation. They work out where they think the fish are most likely to be. And you go to that area and you lay your nets and you wait. And you might get a lot of fish or some fish or, you know, no fish. You wait for the time you said you're going to wait for and you come back in and you repeat. So I say, okay, well, what, what, so what's different to that? What about people who aren't making money? You say, well, that's easy. What they do is they don't do as much preparation. They jump in the boat. While they're in the boat, they start looking at where the fish might be. They end up chasing fish around the ocean, trying to get them. You never get the big haul because you're always kind of chasing the back of the shoal as such. He said, well, what they forget about is when you're whizzing around the ocean, you're burning up fuel. So you come back in with it. Even if you get a decent haul, it's cost you a lot of money to get those fish. Round trips, commissions, as we would call it in the markets. And in, the, in his trading, he was the same. It was about, he would do all his preparation, his research, he'd look at where he thought the opportunities would be, wait patiently. 
it either comes or it doesn't. If it comes, you take it or you take it as well as you can. Then it then times up and you come back in and you repeat. And that, so that was the link between being a great offshore fisherman and being like one of the best um, using a Kiwi, so in New Zealand, and also having success in the markets. And it was nothing to do with the technical skills or tactical skills. It's a psychological framework and an approach and the ability to be patient and to trust yourself. That if you don't catch fish one day, that's okay. You repeat the process, they'll be there another day. And I think that that confidence in here's my process and I am willing to follow it consistently even when it's difficult to do that after maybe a period of having a low catches was was, re was you know, really insightful for me to see and how we'd apply that into his trading the process orientation which i think a lot of traders fail to focus on that like we say that they're results oriented mm. so if they have a good outcome yep. which may be part of luck or randomness and they did something that maybe they shouldn't have done but it led to still a good result they'll repeat that <laughs> yeah. um, and, and yeah. they can have bad outcomes from very good processes because of the degree of randomness yeah. and I always use the poker analogy there to say that a newbie can beat a world champion on day one but you know you put them in a uh, mm -hmm. hundred contests the world champion will win 99 times yeah. out of a hundred um, yeah. and he has a process they have a process um, yeah I was um I was fortunate to do some work in poker for about a year or so with, with for poker stars and went to the European Pro Tour when it's in London. One of many events I went to, but this one sticks in my mind because Phil Ivey, who was like the reigning world champion sort of poker superstar at the time, came over and went out in the first round. And I was like, anyway, I went out really early, really early. And it made me think, wow, that's interesting because, you know, there's not many sports where you see the best in the world by a mile go out literally early on, on, on a table where you've got, you know, people, there's old ladies in their 60s and 70s, there's, you know, students playing. So it's not like they're all high. You know, when you look at them, it's a very eclectic mix of people playing poker. So, you know, you, you don't go to Wimbledon and see, you know, um, Djokovic playing, you know, in the first round against a 65-year-old lady from, you know, um, you know um, Hertfordshire Tennis Club. But when you turn up at poker, you see a very eclectic bunch of people. Um, and, and and that's interesting. So that, and of, in retail trading now, we see the same thing, don't we? You know, in the markets now, the markets are very different to what they were in past years because the the access to the markets is much greater. Um, so we're seeing a very similar thing where you've got lots of people kind of competing against each other from a variety of backgrounds, and 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 luck, randomness um, plays a part in in that for all of us, whether you are highly skilled or, or lowly Phil skilled. Phil Ivey is a great, great story, actually, because um, have you read Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets? Okay, yeah, so I love she it. talks about an, an occasion where Phil Ivey won a tournament, and then afterwards she went out with Annie's brother, who had been sort of facilitating and commenting on the tournament, and it, it was a big tournament, he'd won a huge amount of money, and he went out for dinner in the evening, and her brother said that, you know, all evening he just asked him, what could he have done better, what was, what was good about his process, what was bad about his process, what were the hands which he should have been more attentive to, and he said it was incredible, that's like the mind of a winner. You know, it's not mm. just to accept the result, but it's to always look at the process and think yep. where is room for improvement. Yeah, agree. So, listen, I'm conscious of the time. We, we've we've been talking for close to an hour now. Um, perhaps, you know, Mark's going to take us out in a minute, unless you have any more questions, Mark. Um, how? Just again, as a reminder to the people listening, where can they find your book? What are the title of your books? Where can they find out more about you? 
so the books are, this is in, uh, I'll try and do it in order from oldest to newest. So high performance trading, sports betting to win, trader mind, and then the latest one, bulletproof trader, all available on obviously all the online book selling platforms and so on. Um, so that's easy place to get hold of those. If you want to find out more about me and my work, the best place is the website, which is performanceedgeconsulting.co.uk. Okay. And Mark, anything you want to add or do you, or do you want to just go straight into the, uh, before Steve plays us a riff? <laughs> no, uh, yes, he's gonna he's gonna put his wig on because he's. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Got have you got a guitar there, Steve? Do you have There's two. There's two challenges. I'm I'm bad at the guitar, and I haven't got guitar playing hair, so it's. Uh, it won't be a good either vision. It was not a good visually or or, or from from the audience. Anyway. It's more Pete Townsend style these days. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Well, uh, this is, um, it's been a fabulous chat, and I think uh, it's, it's great to. It's the first time that you know we've we've connected in, in this sense, and I think we've had, and perhaps there's even more to talk about in, in in other ways as we progress our conversations. But I mean, for for the lesson that comes from this, it, people to understand it's about the being, uh, and not not just the doing. And if you're going to do things well, you need to understand how to be and you know. Sort, sort yourself and process out in the first place. Um, otherwise, you're going to be fishing into the wrong river with the wrong bait and trying to wonder why you keep on pulling out old boots from the river and no fish. Um, so trading is complex uh, and it does require an awful lot of attention around, around the process of being. And I think, Steve, your, your book, uh, Bulletproof Trader, does dip into the things that we need to pay attention to. Whoever we are, be it retail, be it professional, you know, it, it involves all of us. So I think we're very, very grateful for that, Steve. And it's been a great to chat with you. And I think for the moment, Steve, and I wish you well. And uh, of course, I'm sure we'd love to speak again. Yep. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for the invite. And uh, yeah, good to connect with you, Mark, for the first time. And Steve, good to speak to you again. Thank you for listening today. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you have been enjoying the Alphamont podcast series, we would be delighted if you could rate and review the show on iTunes or whichever podcast service you use. Ratings and reviews help us grow our audience, which in turn enables us to keep bringing you outstanding guests for your education and pleasure. Also, be sure to subscribe or follow the Alphamont podcast on whichever podcast service you use, so as to make sure you do not miss future episodes. Thank you to our podcast partner, the Society of Technical Analysts, the STA. You can learn more about their service, becoming a member, and their outstanding technical analysis home study course on the STA website, sta-uk.org. Alpha Mind is a joint collaboration between Mark Randall and myself, Stephen Goldstein. To know more about us, visit our website, alpha-mind.net, or go to the Alphamine blog, alphamineblog.blogspot.com. There you can subscribe to our new newsletter. You can also follow us on social media. My Twitter handle is at Alphamind101 and Mark's Twitter handle is at Alphamind102. Or connect with us on LinkedIn and join our Alphamind LinkedIn group. Thank you once again for listening and we hope you have a great week.